Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Well, welcome everyone to Stand Up Pedal Action. Today in studio, we have Michael Brothers, uh, who I met over the last few years in the high school mountain biking realm uh, because he has uh, a vested interest in, in high school mountain biking with several children involved in the sport. And uh, I slowly began to discover what wealth of knowledge and experience we had at our disposal. Uh, and I was pretty astounded that uh, right, right with us, you know, we have this Air Force Academy graduate who went on to get a master's in kinesiology and exercise science and a PhD in integrated physiology and also has a pretty vast competitive background in Nordic skiing and biathlon and now cycling. So it's, it's been really cool to get to know you and uh, we're excited thanks. to have you on the show. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Michael. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. So to, to start out, I'd love to hear some of your, your background, where you grew up and okay. where the passion came from. Yeah. So um, my dad was in the military. Um, so uh, I think born in Virginia, quickly moved to California, um, Texas, and then eventually Colorado Springs. He was assigned to the Air Force Academy uh, as a physician. And uh, that's probably where I first developed the idea of going to the Air Force Academy because when you're walking around as a, you know, young kid looking at cool people dressed up in uniforms and airplanes everywhere, you know, um, I kind of wanted to go there before I even really knew what going there meant. And then, uh, and then he left actually the military before, um, he didn't retire from the military. He, he separated, uh, we moved up to Wyoming and then from third grade on, I was living in Laramie, Wyoming, about three hours North of here. Um, nice. You know, our, our our ranch was at about eight thousand feet. I hear the winters are charming up there. You know, they're not the <laughs> they're not as bad as they used to be. Um, well, that seems to be the case everywhere. But, uh, but yeah, it was an exciting. I mean, we lived out of town about fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, got to every year there'd be at least two to three weeks where we would drive a snowmobile from our house to the highway, um, four miles away where we had our car parked. Yeah, just like leave the car out there because yeah. there's no way to get it to the house. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, I mean, yeah. They would plow it um, open and within six hours, it would be drifted in even worse, you know? So wow. um, there's one year I remember um, soon after I got my license, you know, I was like, I can bust through that drift. And I buried that, <laughs> I buried the truck like 400 yards into a giant snow drift, had to come out the window and that truck sat there for another three to four weeks before <laughs> we were able to pull it out. So um, oh, lots of man. those sorts of lessons learned. But it was a great yeah. place to grow up. That's saying something because I spent some time in the sort of north central Midwest growing up. And yeah, you could get a truck stuck for a day or two, but you never left one out there for a month. Right. Yeah. And we would have spots on the the road going into our house that you just, it would, it would drift in. And so you would just divert over and you'd drive across the prairie you know, for like half a mile and then get back on the road. And then, <laughs> and clearly they had to do that for the truck that was buried in the drift. Um <laughs> for that uh uh that spring wow but um what what kind of ranch was it was it animals uh, not a working ranch we had 64 acres uh south of laramie um so my my dad was a physician so it was more of a hobby farm Um, we had quarter horses we had pigs we had sheep and uh, all my my two sisters and i were involved in 4-h yeah um and uh did a bunch of stuff with i i was never a big fan of most of the animals, uh, especially after um, 
I mean, I was a biker back then, and uh, I think it was like uh, three or four days before hockey season started, I went out on a, a ride, got thrown, busted my clavicle, mm. and it took me out for a bunch of the season. Yeah. And, and ever since then, I'm like, you know, if I'm going to... If I'm going to fall, I want it to be my fault. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something I did stupid on the bike, not, you know, something that where the horse, you know, thinks they see a snake and bucks me off and, you know. Yeah. Those are intimidating creatures. <laughs> I have, I've felt like there have been times where the bike has a mind of its own, but yeah, there's nothing quite like being on top of an animal that weighs multiple times your body weight that you, you know, there's no SPDs on a horse. That's like true. <laughs> you can't, you're not stuck to that thing. Yeah. So you've mentioned hockey and cycling so far. What was the initial athletic passion for you? You know my two boys. Yep. <laughs> um, I was very similar to them. I was not uh -huh. very competitive and not very aggressive until probably my junior year of high school um, when, you know, testosterone finally kicked in. Um, and so I did a lot of sports growing up, um, soccer. Uh, I ran cross country, did track, um, track, you know back in the, uh, would be usually in the fall, um, played hockey the longest from fourth grade on. And um, my last, um, I, I, towards the end of kind of hockey, I, I finally was getting to be decent at it. Um, but it was actually my, my senior year, um, someone, a buddy of mine up in Laramie switched me over to cross country skiing. And so um, my senior year, I, I raced for the first time cross country skiing. Um, was our top skier, you know, despite the fact that I uh, had never done it before. Probably all those years of hockey kind of helped as far as the um, physique. I, I forget now if I, play, I definitely placed top 10. I might have even won states. I, I don't remember. Um, but so that was probably the first sport where I was really um, invigorated with, you know, the competition of it. And, and biking would have been the same had we had bike leagues and bike races back then. That was just something that we we did for fun, but um, now I always like to ask this because biking for fun as a kid takes a lot of different forms. Like we had uh, Kip Bice on here the other day, and for him that meant ridiculous jumps that landed him unconscious on the ground after hitting a tree branch. So, <laughs> what was yeah. biking for you as a kid? Um, probably more the the endurance component of it. Mm. You weren't like um, out there building bootleg backyard jumps with like old doors or something. No, <laughs> no, I knocked myself unconscious um, early on uh, mountain biking, trying to learning how to cross one of those uh, ditches that was exactly wheel. Oh, right. Diameter, yeah, wheel eaters, you know, yeah. And, uh, you know, hit it straight on and uh -huh. right over the handlebar, just slammed my head into a rock, woke up like a minute and a half later with my buddies like, that was awesome. Are you okay? You know, sort of thing. <laughs> Um, proper mountain bike reaction. Yeah. Yeah. But, <sighs> no concern until after we've established that it was awesome. Right. Yeah. So it was, um, it was through like cross country running, cross country skiing mm -hmm. that I realized that I had a decent motor and, you know, could, could do really well for, you know, I could ride uphill for a long time and, and kind of leave people in the dust sort of thing. So, um, that was the piece that I liked Yeah. because it's something I found that I actually excelled at. Yeah. I mean, I was a pretty small, scrawny guy in high school. So I, I did one year on uh, football because my dad uh, made me go out as a seventh grader and I just got pummeled. And hmm. uh, hockey, you can at least, it's a contact sport, but 
size can be being small can be advantageous i was gonna say it's um, contact but it's sort of obliquely like as long as you don't get caught up against the boards right, or something like yeah. that it doesn't fast, mean yeah quick, you can you can get out of the way and yeah um so um so hockey was a good start to it but um but yeah more of the endurance sports for sure where i found my my passion yeah yeah so how did that carry on into your time at the air force academy uh, so the Air Force Academy did not have a competitive, so they, they didn't have an NCAA um, team for cycling um, or skiing, but they had a competitive club. Mm -hmm. um, and every year, and it's the same way now, um, it varies depending on who's in command as to how well or poorly that program is funded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But so I was, uh, um, I did in real sports there, but I was on their um, cycling team. Um, the last two years and I was on their cross country ski team all four years. Um, and we had actually a really good cross country ski team. We would actually race against a lot of the NCAA teams. Um, we won collegiate nationals, um, once or twice. We, we might've been second the, 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 uh, one of those years, um, uh, several guys that went on, they took, actually took, um, they have a program at the Academy called stop out where, um, after you've put in two years, so, mm -hmm. Your first two years at the academy, if you leave during those two years, those first two years, you can leave without owing a debt to the government. Right. Once you start your third year, you are committed. And if you even get kicked out, you owe them either time or money. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have a program called Stop Out um, that's between that second and third year that, for example, um, kids that, um, that are going to do like a mission, um, they, can, they can leave the academy. Oh, right. Do a, a Religious do mission. mission or something yeah, like that. So yeah. Two of the guys on our ski team actually um, took stop out to try out for the Olympics. Um, oh, wow. And uh, so, so we, had, we mm -hmm. had a pretty good team, even though it wasn't an NCAA team. Um, and so one of the things that uh, I think people who don't know much about cross-country skiing or biathlon or anything in that space, what is the mixture of technique to just brute force and ability to suffer <laughs> because you know if you think of a sport like tennis there's obviously an incredible amount of uh physiological capacity involved but it's mm -hmm. also a game of so much precision with how you're playing the ball some people could be potentially mistaken by thinking you just have to ski uphill forever and it doesn't matter whether you're any good as long as you can just suffer yeah so is that accurate or is it all about so a bunch of stuff the rest of us never see so it does have, I mean, the highest um, recorded VO2 max has always been cross-country skiers because you're yeah. not only using your legs, but your, you know, upper body arms as well. Mm -hmm. um, to my knowledge, that hasn't changed. The, the highest recorded ever has always been cross-country skiers. Um, so having a, a good motor, if you will, you know, having mm -hmm. a high VO2 max is a critical component to being a competitive cross-country skier. Yeah. Um, however, there is a lot of technique involved and there are plenty of guys that, that have huge motors that I've biked with that I get them out there in the ski trails and, you know, and they're so inefficient that they're just burning energy and not going anywhere. So how did you get from a fairly late introduction into skiing to having a place on a team next to prospective Olympians? So the, uh, so you've got two techniques, of course, you've got mm -hmm. classic technique and skate technique. Uh, or freestyle. 
um, classic, or it's also called the diagonal stride, is the one that most people, when they think of cross-country skiing, it, it's they're thinking of classic technique. Okay. You know, your skis are parallel to each other mm-hmm. the whole time. I mean, you really could put on skis and be walking on them, you know, and you're just adding a you're little bit of You're just gliding in the tracks, yeah. Um, so so that, that one takes very little... So anyone, I, I say, I tell anyone that they could, they could go out and teach themselves how to classic ski mm-hmm. and the learning curve is, um, I mean, you can, it, it, it's, if you were to kind of, doesn't work to do hand gestures. With <laughs> no, it doesn't. I can, so de- we can describe graph, it for the folks at home. Yeah. yeah. If there was a graph of this, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can improve your technique, but to get really, really proficient at classic technique takes a lot of um, a lot of practice because ultimately you're having to have all your weight on one ski to get the best possible grip as you push off. And then you're having to transition your weight to that glide ski to mm-hmm. prolong that glide. And then you're going back and forth. So, so anyone can classic ski, but to classic ski really well takes, I would say years and years of practice to counter that. So skate skiing, um, lots of people, you know, it's, it looks exciting to, to do and they, uh, they go out and try it and they just absolutely hate it because it requires even more technique initially, um, to figure it out. And this is that sort of so herringbone like, pattern. Yeah, it looks like ice skating, right. you know, except of course, um, you know, you're, you've got skis on. And so mm-hmm. anyone that ice skates, typically you start with your, your heel leaves the ice, your toe is pointing down. You can't do that with skis because you're going to catch your tip in the snow and you're going to fall on your face within mm-hmm. the first couple strides. Right. Um, so, so kind of go back to your question. So I was okay as a classic skier um, because I had a good motor, but mm-hmm. I did not have good technique. I think finally now after doing it almost four decades, I'm, I, I feel my, I feel like, I feel like I'm a pretty in. good classic skier now, <laughs> um, technique wise. Okay. Um, the skate skiing, I picked it up immediately just because I think, you know, all those years of uh, hockey, um, you know, seven, eight years of hockey. Um, so it, all I had to remember was pull my tips up, you know, not catch yeah. them. Um, and, and most people find that like skate skiing, again, if you were to graph um, the learning curve, mm-hmm. it's super steep at the beginning, you know, I mean, and how long it takes to kind of have that breakthrough varies. I've, when I coached the, the academy ski team for about a decade, I mean, we'd have people that have never seen snow that would join the team just because they needed some way to get away from the academy, (laughs) you know? And so we'd have Texans on, on the team and, you know, some of them within, you know, a couple months or a couple weeks, um, would pick it up and all of a sudden, you know, you went from being only like 10 to 15% efficient to 80, 85% efficient. And so this huge improvement, uh, whereas others, you know, sometimes it took a year or two, but, but kind of bottom line is the technique piece you learn it fast. I mean, it, it's tougher to learn, but once you get there, then it's very, it's easier to get really good. Okay. Um, so both of them require both technique mm-hmm. and, a, and a good motor. Um, but depending on what, what style of skiing you're doing kind of determines how quickly that technique piece comes. And you can compete in each one. Right. Yeah. So it used to be just cross-country skiing. Um, and it was during, so prior to Jesse Diggins earning our first gold medal, um, the first uh, Olympic medal that we earned in cross-country skiing um, was Bill Koch. And a big reason that he won it was that he had created a, um, a, a skating type technique that was used in basically a classic race. 
Oh. And so and was this at the time revolutionary and frowned upon and all the stuff that so usually happens like, in sport? Whoa, we didn't know, you know, you could do that. And okay. th- right after that, they then broke it into two different, you know, two different types of technique. You know, so you have classic races where your skis have to be parallel the whole time. Um, if you're going up like a steep hill where you lose mm-hmm. your kick and you have to herringbone, they actually have people posted on those hills to make sure that you're herringboning up the hill and you're not getting any glide, uh, you know, because oh. that, so that's the difference, you know, a s- skate technique is basically a herringbone where you're getting glide on each one of those, you know. Oh, okay. Um, there we go. Yeah. Leg mm. movements. And this would be for <laughs> those of us who aren't any good on skis. This is the bit where you get stuck on a catwalk on a resort and you're like somebody like me, I'm trying to just barely get along the flat bit and I don't want to pull the whole thing where you're kicking off and trying to glide just a little. That's essentially what you're talking about versus that, just like steps. Right. Truly. Yeah. Of course, on that catwalk, if you're on classic skis, because again, mm-hmm. you have a the sticky wax yep. in the middle of the ski, mm-hmm. you can still, you know, and you're not attached at the heel, um, you right. can still stride um, and get and get good kick on classic skiing. But eventually you'll get to a hill that's too steep mm-hmm. or if it's too icy that you're going to lose your grip and you have to switch to that herringbone. Gotcha. Okay. So, so where where did biathlon? Yeah, I was gonna say where 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 do you start saying okay now guns yeah. too? So, <laughs> I mean um, we have a we have a background in Wyoming and the Air Force Academy, so maybe the guns aren't that yeah, far out. So that that those those that background did help, but um, so I uh, so I graduated from the Air Force Academy uh, ninety four. Um, I was I won um, collegiate nationals as a cross country skier, and so of course I was like I need to move someplace where I can keep skiing and try the Olympics. You know, I, I would like to try to make yeah. the Olympic team. Um, and so the way uh, the Air Force Academy worked, at least then, probably still the same or re- relatively similar, is you kind of fill out what they call a dream sheet, you know, list your top seven, you know, top seven bases or five bases that you would like to be assigned to. And also you're listing what jobs you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the needs of the Air Force always right overrule Uncle Sam whatever wins. you want right yeah, and yeah. so when i graduated i mean lots of people wanted to be pilots i wanted to be either a pilot or a navigator we had too many pilots at the time and so they um they cut the slots for a lot of those so i, I didn't get i think i got my fifth choice as far as careers um which was a personnel officer mm-hmm. and i put in for you know alaska um washington state um even like North Dakota, um, people always talk about, um, so Minot Air Force Base, people yeah, are like, yeah, why yeah. not Minot? You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a place that most people want to go to, um, but I knew that I could at least ski race there. Yeah. So, I, so I put in for all these Northern Tier locations uh, where I could, you know, continue skiing. And uh, I got Biloxi, Mississippi for my <laughs> first time home. So um, mm, that yeah. was kind of a bummer. Yeah. Um, I, I did try to do some roller skiing while I was down there and I got tired of having beer cans thrown at me and, you know, just, uh, <laughs> not a real warm welcome despite no, the warm you know, location. I mean, they're like, I don't know, what's this guy doing on these funny wheeled things, you know, and typically like wearing Lycra, you know, that too. I was like, must be a faggot, you know, let's throw beer cans uh, at this dude. Yeah. So, um, so I basically put the, the ski career on, um, on pause, got more into biking um, because I, again, like I said, I bike raced through, uh, through, throughout most of college as well. So did a lot of road riding early in the morning before it got too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, my next assignment, uh, 
two years later was uh, Fairchild Air Force Base in mm -hmm. uh, Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then I was able to get back into um, skiing, ski racing, and along while doing different um, citizen races, learned about the Air Force's world-class athlete program and the fact that um, while, while we have a Olympics every four years, um, the military actually has the equivalent of Olympics every year. It's called CISM. Um, for the skiing, it's uh, Kansal, or now for for all the sports, um, Kansal International de Sport Militari. It's mm -hmm. um, I think it sounds French. like the French came up with this. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, so, <laughs> so they have that every year, and cross country skiing is one of the events. Um, mm -hmm. Biathlon. That so typically, um, so every year you try out just like you would for an Olympic team. Um, you try out for the military's Olympic team, uh, and they have about ten or twelve spots typically for biathletes. And then only three spots for cross-country skiers. With the, I mean, okay. so number one, biathlon, I mean, its roots are in military history. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, all the Scandinavian countries, um, they're the ones that basically created the sport, uh, the competition as a way to gauge how, mm -hmm. how well, you know. Essentially a recruitment tool, right, for the general public to say, if we're going to make a sport out of this to find out who would actually be good at skiing and shooting in a fight more so i think just so the scandinavian countries that is how you train their army mm. they you know we talk about boots on the ground well there it's it's it was always skis on the ground you know because eight ten months out of the year if you're you know a soldier um in a scandinavian country you're you're having to go from place to place on skis yeah skis or snowshoes and skis mm -hmm. are definitely you know faster yeah, yeah. um so, um, and, and then the other interesting thing that I learned about that is that uh, the majority of the European Olympians are in the military um, and their full-time job is to train and to race. So, so oh, at these military Olympics, sneaky. you're actually racing against guys that have won gold medals and, you know, podiumed at the actual, you know, the, the Olympics yeah. every four years. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I learned about SISM and I'm like, that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's one step towards going, you know, trying to make the U.S. Olympic team is to make the yeah. military's Olympic team. I was able to um, have the military basically, the Air Force uh, released me from my job to go up for a four-day competition to try out for the team mm -hmm. and uh, got blown away, just got killed. Um, <laughs> On the skiing the, the or the year. shooting? Uh, so the, just cross-country. So I just, oh, at this okay. point, so I was just cross-country. I was okay. just a cross-country, still just a cross-country ski racer. Uh -huh. So And you got annihilated. Um, what, and well, you got, yeah, just cause I was like, well, who are these, you know, these guys, what, you know, how good can they be? Well, it turns out, so all of the people I was competing with are, most of them are army guard. Hmm. Uh, so I'm act, I was active duty. So I have a full-time air force job Yeah, and I was skiing on the side, um, for fun and, and competitively, but you know, for fun. Um, the, so the air force has got a program called the world-class athlete program. The army has the same program and the majority of the Army WCAP athletes are actually in the National Guard. And so they are brought on to active duty for three years, and their full-time job is to train to try to make the Olympic team. Uh, I'm seeing <laughs> a pattern then, here. Yeah, and then yeah. they go, and then, so they, they make the Olympic team or they don't. They have one year going back to the Guard, which, um, if you're not familiar with, like, the Guard mm -hmm. or the Reserve, it's the one day, one weekend a month, um, mm. one weekend a month and, like, two weeks a year. So they have a normal civilian job, typically, and then they just are doing this part-time guard duty. Yeah. Um, but a lot of guard athletes, and in fact, quite a few of the Olympic athletes that I know, 
Um, they spent their full, they retired from the army and their almost, basically their full-time job was being a world-class athlete program, athlete training for the next Olympics. Um, and so, so I was not yeah. going against guys. I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And so there right. were some, they were, they were very competitive. You know, that was their job. They ate, mm -hmm. slept, you know, ate, slept and skied. And that was all they did. Stiff competition there. Stiff competition. So, so I doubled down the next year, trained even harder um, f to try to make the Nordic team, the military's Olympic Nordic team. And uh, they take again the top three. And I finished less than a second out of third place. Oh, so I just no. missed the team. And so I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going all in. Yeah. Um, I tracked down. Wait, did you see this happening? Was this like the end of the race, like sprint finish, you're chasing the guy down? So or? most of them are individual starts. Oh, so you, okay. you know, so you don't know. Seconds, someone goes out. And so you're chasing people, people are chasing you, but you don't know exactly right. where you are in the race until you cross the finish line. Oh my gosh. And, um, and again, they were all army athletes i was mm. the one lone air force guy and so i i wouldn't be surprised i mean i i, I remember like watching like did he stop the button as i crossed the line or was it a couple seconds late i mean either way i mean it's like oh, you yeah. know what that was just too close um mm -hmm. so i went all in I, I bought a bathlon rifle i had grown up on a ranch i used to shoot you know rabbits and gophers and yeah um so dogs i figured i could pick it up faster than than others that had maybe never held a gun there's two types of shooting for biathlon. You've mm -hmm. got prone where you're right. coming in, you're lying down, and then you've got offhand where you're standing. Yeah. Um, and the target size is different too. Um, if you've ever watched a biathlon mm -hmm. race, the, uh, yeah, they're, so they're super exciting to watch, um, more so than even a ski race because, you know, two guys will come in at the same time and they're basically tied for whatever, first or second place. And then it all changes within 30 seconds based on how well or how poorly they shot. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if you so, miss... Yeah, I was going to say, for those who don't know, yeah, so, it's skiing so, and shooting, and then there are time bonuses, correct? Or So it depends penalties. on the race. Okay. Yeah. So, so first, we'll, uh, we'll just talk about the target. Um, so the, if, if you've watched it, uh, watched a bathalon race on TV, you've got, you know, five targets and they're big black circles, you know, mm -hmm. roughly... Um, I should, I should remember the size, but you know, <laughs> roughly like three and a quarter inches in diameter. Um, and so when you're shooting offhand, which is again, when you come mm -hmm. in and you're shooting standing, if you hit the bullet, if the bullet hits any part of that black, that roughly three mm -hmm. and a quarter inch um, diameter, the target goes down. And so you hit all five, um, you know, then you shot clean. For prone, where you're coming in and you're lying down, the target looks the same, but you actually have to hit the very center of that target. It's about the size of a quarter. So Ooh. if you're not right dead center, if you're, you know, out by half an inch, um, you'll have hit the black, but you didn't hit that inner target. And so the target doesn't go down. And so it's a miss. Um, so going wow. back to then okay. what happens. So if you shoot clean, if you hit all five mm -hmm. targets, um, then you go right back out on course. Mm -hmm. Um You've got two different, uh, you've got the individual and then you've got the sprint race. The sprint race uh, for men is typically 10K. Mm -hmm. So you'll do roughly a two to three K loop. Yeah. You come in and you shoot prone, go back out, ski another two to three K loop, come in, shoot offhand, and then do your last two to three K and then cross the finish line. Mm -hmm. And for the sprint race, um, adjacent to the range, there's a penalty loop. And so for every target you missed, you have to ski a loop around the penalty loop 
which, which depending on how okay, fast so this or is how diabolical. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's very so you easy. Get punished. So, yeah, so the sport biathlon sounds. I mean, it's like oh, I'm just shooting during a ski race. You know how hard can it be? It sounds terrifying. But it, it it's there's a huge mental aspect to it because mm -hmm. you can go in and you're oh, you know I'm I'm sitting I'm sitting first right now, and you shoot too slow because again you're being timed as you're shooting too. Mm -hmm. So if you rush your shots and you miss some, that can cost you. You know if you go too slow. That'll cost that can you. Cost it. Yeah, so it's you're trying to always find this balance, and, and we haven't even talked about the fact that you get to zero your rifle before zero your rifle before the race, but the wind is going to change. It's yeah. going to change during the race, so you have wind flags that you have to, you know, you're taking clicks up or right or left, you know, adjusting for both the wind and um, because these are twenty two caliber, twenty two caliber, yeah, right. They, so it's a very light bullet. So it can be more heavily it's, affected by the wind, correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, Not and to so, mention, you were just redlining your heart rate. <laughs> right. Right. That's one I want to get into before yeah. we get past the skiing thing is I want to know about that part. Yeah. And that's, that's another whole, it, as it turns out, it takes years to figure out <laughs> what that perfect zone is for, uh, for you as a biathlete. Okay. Um, well, we'll just jump into that right now. Cause that's the part that I've always wondered. Okay. You know, not, <laughs> I I've shot rifles, I've skied. I've never tried to do them back to back and even just wandering out to the range, trying to figure out your heart rate for when you want to squeeze that trigger is one thing. How in the world, like Josh was just saying, do you go from redlining, you know, your, whatever that is for you, 180 beats a minute higher, you know, wherever you're at to figuring out how to drop your pulse as fast as you can to be able to just take a shot when you need to. How, how yeah. do you do that? So, so I think it's different for every, excuse me, every person, but um, I, I would say most people, so you're shooting, you're going to, of course, shoot the best when you are at rest, you know, mm -hmm. low heart rate, relaxed breathing, you know, that's going to be when you're most precise. Mm -hmm. As your heart rate increases, as your breathing increases, you know, it becomes tougher, but there's kind of a sweet spot somewhere in there where you can kind of line up the shots between breaths and between your heart pounding. Mm -hmm. Um that you can you can shoot pretty good. I mean, not anywhere close to as well as you could when you're relaxed, but but actually, um, there's kind of a sweet spot where when you're breathing easier or breathing harder, and heart rate is lower or higher, it becomes harder. Mm -hmm. So so you have to find that sweet spot. And and is I mean, this sort of a universal sweet spot for everybody, or is this de athlete dependent? So. I would say athlete dependent as far as if you're looking at a key range, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's 160 to 170 beats per minute or, you know, 130 to 140. Yeah. Um, for me, certainly, I could not come in completely gassed and shoot well. Um, and so, so all the biathletes that I know, I mean, you actually do back off your last like half a K or K as you're mm -hmm. coming into the range. Okay. You're, you're mm -hmm. thinking, okay, it's not about skiing anymore. I got to get, get prepared to shoot. And, we'll, and so you're, you're, you're kind of toning it back, trying to get your breathing under control, trying to get your heart rate back to that key zone that you know works for you. So are course designers aware of this and decide to be jerks and put the range like at the top of a climb? So, so the range, I think, is usually just where, I, I mean, where it can go. Where it can based be, on yeah. It. But, but, that, but that is a, a valid point. So every, um, every venue you go to, it's mm -hmm. different. Um, racing up in Canmore, it was a downhill 
into the range. And I love that because, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, it's like I'm in a tuck, I'm just chilling out, I'm going as fast as I normally would. Um, and my heart rate would be, you know, recovered pretty decently. And so I could always shoot pretty well at Canmore. Um, other people actually would get too relaxed. So some of them would have to, they would basically be still skate skiing hard down some of those hills to keep the heart rate high enough to still be in what was their preferred zone for shooting. Oh, because as you said earlier, you can sort of fall out the bottom of that. And if you're too relaxed, the timing won't work. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think I haven't ever thought too much about it, but it's almost like your heart and your breathing have to be kind of in sync so that at least you're just adapting to one, you know, kind of adjustment versus like, um, I I mean, obviously not in sync in the sense that, you know, I mean, respiration's never going to be as high as heart rate, but, you know, kind of lining <laughs> yeah. up where each respiration is lining up sort of, sort of with the heart rate. Right. Um, something to that effect. Right. Because again, and this might show some ignorance on my part, but I was always taught, you know, when you're shooting, it's that take your breath in, half out, and then hold and fire. But that's easy enough when you're just at a resting heart rate and you can take your time with it. But here you're, you're timing yeah. it with an incredibly fast rate of respiration, but, correct? But you're, well, but you're still trying to do the same thing. So okay, you're, yeah. as you're exhaling, you're mm-hmm. trying to pull the, pull the trigger. And especially right. for offhand, um, so, so prone, you know, you, that target is, again, very small. It's the size of a quarter. So you have to be lined up just dead center on it. Um, for offhand, it's impossible, at least for me, it was always impossible, because your legs are, I mean, sometimes you would get like the uh, sewing machine legs, oh, yeah. which I don't know if you've experienced that, but you know, like you've gone, yeah. your legs are gone so hard that like your, sh- your legs are You're literally twitching. just shaking, yeah. Um, and it's almost impossible to shoot offhand if you've got that going on. But, um, but regardless, you, for me personally, and, and I think most biathletes, you cannot line up the target um, for offhand and keep it there. You basically lining it up above it and you're just letting the rifle slowly drop down and you're trying to squeeze it as it passes in view. Wow. Whoa. Because again, you have, a, you have that <laughs> oh, wait, three These are half, open sights too, right? Uh, they're peep sights. Okay. Yeah. 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 So but they're not open, no, but there's no scope on it. Right. No optical magnification. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're basically just lining up a series of circles, mm-hmm. you know, and oh trying to gosh. get, you know, have the, uh, an equal amount of white space around each of the black circles you know, with the center circle being the target that you're trying to hit. Such a cool sport. So, yeah. So are there, cause this obviously ties in, in cycling, especially in mountain biking, where you have to manage heart rate and respiration to handle like little sprints up hills and things like that. Was there anything, any actual techniques that come out of biathlon that are good for individuals in terms of breathing or whatever else in terms of managing your heart rate? Well, so, I mean, interval training certainly helps mm-hmm. in the sport of biathlon because you need to be able to get your heart rate to recover, you know, quicker. Um, but, and this was the thing that, that I did not expect when I took up the rifle for biathlon is a huge, just a huge mental aspect, you know, of, um, you know, kind of switching over to, okay, I'm going as hard as I can. You know, it's, you're just trying to keep up with the guy in front of you or pass the guy in front of you to, I have to slow myself down because in a minute and a half or two minutes, I'm going to be shooting on the range and I need to shoot quickly, but not too quick. And I need to make every one of those shots count. So rather than, I just want to pass that guy, I've been behind him forever and here's my chance. You just have to say, no, I have to let him go because this is my rate to shoot right. like I want. And then we'll see what happens on the other and, side. And that's very hard to do, especially if you're a competitive <laughs> yeah. You know, person. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, 
you're like, oh, this guy's slowing down. There's now's my chance. When and then you pay for it as soon as you enter the range, and he shoots clean, and you missed four, and now he's back on the course, and you're doing penalty laps, and you have all that time in the penalty lap to think about what you just did wrong. Right. And then and then not only that is you're in the penalty lap and you're like, I just lost about two minutes. And so then you're like trying to make up time by mm-hmm. skiing hard in the penalty lap that then could hurt you the next time you can. So it, it's a vicious cycle. I mean, oh, it's, man. I have yeah. never really. So a good friend of mine from, uh, she lives up in Laramie. She made the Olympic team probably the, the year I had my best chance to have made it had I been able to, to attend. Um, she made the 2000 and... 16. Um, but she, she, similar background as me, very competitive cross-country skier, took up the sport of biathlon. And she was like, I thought I was just learning how to shoot a gun, not become a Jedi, Jedi mind reader. You know, I mean, just <laughs> like the amount of mental, um, I mean, your brain would hurt, you know, training because you're, you're just focusing on things that um, you didn't expect to, to have to focus on. Whereas, I, I mean, I'd much rather just put my head down and just keep going hard and, you know, not have to think. I've uh, heard it argued that biathletes are the greatest athletes of any, any discipline anywhere in the world at which, you know, you have to look at different metrics, but compared to like, you already said the VO2 max, the highest recorded is cross country skiing. And then you throw in the mental aspect and the precision that you need for shooting, as well as the ability to find that that sweet spot with your heart rate and breathing like that is that's a lot to throw together yeah it, it's a way more challenging sport than most people realize um also it's cold outside when you're doing this like let's not forget yeah so um i mean that you know temperatures are always always different mm-hmm. um you know and so that's something else like so i mean it, that affects your skis you have different yeah, waxes, wax to different figure grinds, out yeah. you have to figure out whereas unlike you know biking you can you know, on any given course, you can kind of compare, you know, times roughly, at least road, you know, yeah. travel. I guess it in the mountain space, we have tire pressure mountains, but, depending yeah. on moisture, especially here in Colorado. But yeah, yeah that's not, but, but not you, anywhere yeah. the same. But yeah, you have that piece and then you have the cold and um, there's, you know, they have a limit. Um, you know, if it's too cold, they, they postpone or, you know, they'll delay the race until it's warm enough or, or they'll have to cancel it all the, all the time, you know, completely. Um but you need to be able to feel your fingers. And so you don't want to have too thick of a glove because, you know, you have to, that, that you, I mean, the trigger's fairly sensitive and you need to be squeezing at just the right time. And so um, a lot of biathletes will actually, they cut a little slot in their um, index finger glove so that they can, you know, stick a bare hand, their bare finger out to feel it. Oh, no way. And I've even got friends that they, they would race with no gloves no matter what. Some of them did not finish races because, you know, they, you know, I mean, they had frostbite. They couldn't finish the race. They, you know, um, like they just totally lost their hands. Yeah. And just game over. Yeah. Wow. One of the guys that made the Olympic team the year that I tried out, um, he was, he was the fifth. So he was the alternate. Um, but we had a, where did, where was that race? It might've been Valcartier, um, up in Canada, uh, which was always notoriously cold. I remember being up there for a week and, the first three days of racing, they would delay it an hour, delay it two hours, and then cancel. And they finally, like, held it unofficially just because, they're like, everyone came up here to race, and, um, but you was... know, we haven't been able to have one yet. So it's not an official race. It's too cold. But if you want to race, you can. But if everybody wants to go out there, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like, three quarters of the people went out and made the first loop. And by the time you lie down, I mean, mm-hmm. and you're on a padded mat, but 
Um, you're not lying on the snow, but just stopping for that 45 seconds to shoot, like half the people dropped out after that because their hands were too cold. Oh my gosh. Didn't feel anything. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. So there's, so there's all sorts of additional environmental challenges, you know, the wind, the, there's been races where, you know, it starts snowing, you, mm -hmm. you zeroed, it was sunny, you could see the targets, almost no wind. And then 30 minutes later, it's snowing, the wind's blowing, you know, 20 knots and you're like looking at the targets and you can only barely see them between the gusts of snow, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, and then again, it comes back to that mental game. It's like, do I just, you know, shoot all five real quick, knowing I'm going to go do a penalty lap or do I sit there and wait for the wind and spend two to three minutes in the range, maybe hit a couple, but maybe still end up having to spend time on the penalty loop. So it's, there's just some way more mental um, stuff going on in the sport of biathlon that I had not really um, fully appreciated until I got into it. Okay. So we're going to take it back to the story then. So we're at that point then where you have decided, all right, forget the cross country skiing. I'm taking a rifle with me next year. Yep. What happened? So, um, so I, I did a lot of, uh, um, kind of double down on the ski training. I was, so again, at the time I was still up at Fairchild Air Force Base, uh, had a good boss and he understood what I wanted to do. So I would, I'd get up at like three 30 in the morning and go up and start, start training Mm -hmm. at 4 a.m. in the dark, um, oh avoiding the, the uh, Forest Service folks that, that made sure that no one was out there on the trails before sun up. Was this um, uh, Mount Spokane? Mount Spokane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so I, I, I showed up to work late or I would leave work early so I could get training time in. Had to work on the shooting quite a bit. The prone came very easy for me. Mm -hmm. the, the offhand shooting was, was much tougher. Um, but uh, the, the next, so that third year that I tried out for the military Olympic team, um, the, the biathlon, I, so I made it, I was like the second to last person to make the biathlon team, which also then qualified me for cross country. So, mm. so then I got to make it for both. Right. And so you're in. I was in. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and it's kind of cool. Uh, so the first season I went to was 99 in at Lillehammer, Norway. So on okay. the Olympic venue. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the military Olympics, they have the sprint biathlon race, which we, yep. we talked about. So that's mm -hmm. the one where 10K ish. 10K ish, you shoot once prone, once standing, and for every shot you miss, you have to do a penalty loop. Yep. Um, then they have the individual, um, mm -hmm. which is a longer race, it's 20K. Um, so you do roughly a 4K loop, you shoot prone, and then ski, sh shoot standing, and then prone and standing again. Oh, for okay. that one, so you shoot a total so of 20 four bullets. Times. Four okay, times. 20 bullets, yeah. And for that one, there's no penalty loop. They instead, every shot you miss, it's a one minute time added to your overall ski time. A minute. Yeah. So, so in the penalty loop, you don't want to be in the penalty loop, but if you're a fast skier, you can, you can make up right. for bad shooting by skiing the penalty loop. But Especially on, like you were saying, days where conditions are unfavorable and the shooting would have been hard and slow anyway, right. then you can calculate that. But yeah, in this, so it's just a flat minute. It's a flat minute. So that changes things like you just, mm -hmm. you know, like you picked up on. Um, yeah. So the, you can't afford to miss as many shots. You yeah, know, in, the, in the the individual race, because again, that minute, I mean, that's a huge time penalty. And if you, you know, I mean, invariably there'll be a couple, you know, top skiers, top biathletes will, will shoot clean. But, you know, I mean, if you're, if you hit nine, nine out of 10 of the targets, you know, if you're shooting 90%, mm -hmm. you have a good shot of making the podium, you know, but it drops off real quickly. Once you start you know, missing even that. a couple yeah. more. And yeah. So those, so you, 
you know, typically you're going to spend a little more time in the range making those shots count. You know, even though you know you're losing time in the range, it's better than losing a full minute for each of those shots that you miss yeah. in the in the individual. Oh my gosh! Um, and then and then the cool thing is that they uh, for the military Olympics they also have something called the uh, uh, the patrol race. Mm-hmm. So it's a you're a, it's a four man, um, basically race, and you're doing it's like twenty five k. Um, you shoot twice during that, once prone, once offhand, but you have to start as a team, you have to end as a team, and then uh, and you've got one person that's the patrol leader that does not shoot, but they command the three people to kind of shoot, like fire when ready sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do anything you need to do to help each other out, um, because there's always... There's always someone that's going to be the anchor, you know, someone is going to be, or the whipping boy, we used to call him. You, know? <laughs> you, you always prayed that you weren't the weak skier of those four during that race because, you know, everyone's going hard and you're the one that's holding them up. Yeah. So you could do anything you wanted. So you could, um, so I, I was oftentimes as an officer, most of the guard guys were um, enlisted. Um, so I outranked them. So that mm-hmm. made me have it to be the, um, um, the leader um, for the patrol race. Which also meant I didn't shoot, which was which was okay because my offhand was still not so good. <laughs> um, but but like so the weak the weaker skier I could pick up their I could take their rifle from them and carry their rifle so that they could be at least skiing that twenty five k without okay. the rifle without yeah. that extra weight and then we just hand it off to them before they go into the range. Um, All right. I can remember one race where I had like two rifles on my back because both of them were <laughs> everybody's in the hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and the same thing that you see like with cycling. I mean, so you're trying to draft off of each other, mm-hmm. you know, the back guy, you know, if, if someone's got faster skis and you're passing one of the slower skiers on your team, you know, you'll kind of grab their butt or their ski pole and try to push them along so yeah. that you're bleeding your speed off to speed them up um, to try to kind yeah, of even everything team out. Team tactics kind of, yeah, yeah just so, like road riding. Wow. Yeah. So not, um, not one that's in the Olympic, um, that mm-hmm. they hold in the Olympics, but it's in the military Olympics and just another really fun sport, you know, to kind of, to do and to, to watch. Man. Yeah. I, we'll see. That might be a thing that Supa is going to have to get into at some point. Yeah. Well, we haven't touched on this yet, but uh, until recently, there has not really been a venue for cross country skiing near Colorado Springs. However, you started the Woodmore Nordic Center that you run yeah, as, a, as a nonprofit. Yeah. So talk to us about that. What's the story there? So as you guys know, I, you know, spent a lot of my time, um, skiing, you know, as a winter athlete. Um, and in fact, uh, it was especially hard because the my last military assignment, I was up in Michigan, mm-hmm. um, up in the upper peninsula where they get way more snow than I ever realized Michigan got. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I was able to ski every day during my lunch hour yeah. on, you know, beautiful groom trails, the same trails that I had, um, attended us nationals and they've done Olympic, you know, tryouts at this area. It was three minutes from my office. Oh my gosh. So, um, and, and bike trails in the summer, yeah. incredible bike trails in the summer. So it was, a, it was a great place to, to finish out a military career. But then coming back, moving back to Colorado Springs where we had, um, the best job prospects, um, tough to go back to, you know, front range snow conditions and drive yeah. warm winters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you know, I used to do the drive all the time up to Snow Mountain Ranch, Devil's Thumb, Breck Nordic, you know, but every one of those, it's a two hour, mm-hmm. especially with the traffic and congestion oh, yeah. that we have That's now, you know, it's a four hour round trip and it's hard to justify that. So it, um, the 10 years that I coached the ski team at the Air Force Academy, um, and I was, I was still training for the Olympics. Uh, I tried up for the 2002 Olympic team. And so I had tried to ski 
pretty much every place you can ski on the front range without uh. having to drive a big distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and a buddy of mine um, that's on our board of uh, directors for the what is now our new Woodmore Nordic nonprofit. Um, he's an engineer. He had designed some grooming devices. We we groomed all sorts of different spots, um, places that we had permission, and and other places where we just <laughs> decided we would kind of try it out and hope we didn't get caught. <laughs> um, and and so. So moved back in 2014, and I was out skiing in Fox Run. Um, there had been enough snow. People had been snowshoeing on it. It was packed down. It was pretty good. And then I hit one of the spots where it melted out on a downhill at about like 25 miles an hour. Oh, no. Huge wreck. You know, my ski stopped. Uh. I kept going, slammed my shoulder into the ground, um, almost tore a tendon. <laughs> um, uh. And I was like, you know what? This, I need to, we need to fix this. And so we became... Um, members at the country club at Woodmore, you know, so I did a bunch of research. I contacted, um, uh, gold run Nordic center that's up in Breckenridge that's on their golf course. And, you know, went through all the pros and cons, you know, what are the, what are the challenges that you face? What do you have to do to prevent damage on a golf course? Um, and pitched it to the, uh, the current, the current owners of the country club at Woodmore. It had gone bankrupt like the third time in a decade and a half. And these guys, I, between the fact that they just bought it bankrupt mm-hmm. um, and that I was maybe inside, I was a club member, Yeah, you know, they're like, you know, we got six months, we can't do golf. What is there to lose? So, sure. um, so yeah, we, uh, my buddy built a, a homemade roller out of a piece of culvert pipe and um, <laughs> two by fours, basically. Oh my um, gosh. And then uh, borrowed, it was actually one of the club owners, I think it was like his brother-in-law's snowmobile. Um, and I was like, well, the one thing you need to know is like the snowmobiles that you use to groom ski trails are typically their four stroke and they're, they have a special, special cooling mechanism. You can't use just a normal snowmobile because most snowmobiles yeah, are air cooled. You got to so run them fast. You have to run them fast. And if you're grooming ski trails, you're going, you're pulling something that's anywhere from 50 to 300 pounds and you're going five to 10 miles an hour. So yeah, you're going to burn that snow machine right to the ground. Yeah. So the first season, um, we started, it was, it was actually a really good winter here we started we had snow in november and mm-hmm. uh, we started grooming this the ski trails with this borrowed snowmobile and this home-built um roller <laughs> and just to prove that it could be yeah. done yeah yeah and um within the first month we blew up the engine of the snowmobile oh. <laughs> um, we initially started grooming the trails um until the snowmobile busted and then i again i was like okay i'm all yeah. in uh found a uh a, a, a trailer that would fit a snowmobile and a groomer um, on it that I picked up off of Craigslist for like 800 bucks, um, coordinated with some folks that I knew up at Devil's Thumb from all my years of racing and coaching up there, um, convinced them to sell me one of their very old grooming snowmobiles and, mm-hmm. uh, a Tidtech groomer. And we, I mean, that first year we had skiing for almost four months. We, I always tell people that, you know, I mean, it'll go from midwinter awesome, you know, as good as, you know, as good as you could get up in the mountains to then spring skiing to... You know, we've melted out in a few spots and we need to wait till the next storm. So, right. and there's some years where I made a little bit of money and there's years where I lost some money. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it, not a great business model running a Nordic center on the front range. And certainly <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do this to try to become rich. It was, I want a place to ski and I know I have lots of, there's lots of other people on the front range that would be, that would like to be able to ski and not have to drive all that distance. So we finally, um, Decided, you know, and we need to, to try to make this a nonprofit. 
we're certified 501c3. We've got, um, we're tax exempt for the state of Colorado, which means what, we, what used to be the season passes that we would sell. Um, now there would more Nordic memberships, which is your season pass. So yeah. in the past, it's been a risky business of, you know, do I want to buy a season pass for a ski season that could be four months long, but it could be, I think our worst season, we were open three weeks, Ooh. you know, so you pay yeah. a couple, you know, 130 bucks is what an individual pass costs, mm-hmm. what we charge. Are you going to get your $130 worth of skiing? Maybe, maybe not. But at least now, I mean, if you don't ski at all or you ski only once or twice, you know, everything else is tax deductible. It's, it's a really cool program that you've, you've worked on. And I know I've, I've skied up there a couple of times over the years before I knew you. Um, that was, it was fun. It's a great place. Well, and it's, it, it's fun to know that that's a resource for athletes here on the, on the front range that while that may not be their sport, since it is winter as we're recording this, and many of us are thinking about what are we going to do for next year's race season in cycling? All right. Well, what are you going to do over the winter? Are you literally just going to sit in your garage on Zwift all all the cold, dark months, or is there something else you can do to diversify your training? Well, here's an option yeah. potentially. And in fact, this is the that was like the number one go to for cyclists before Zwift and indoor trainers. Um, I still remember it's one of those kind of bragging right stories of uh, um, back in college, I got to race Greg LeMond and kicked his ass. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, it was cool as a yeah. college kid to be like, I just took down Greg LeMond. Yeah. I mean, of course, whether, you know, he was just out there training. You sure, know? I sure. Mean, um, and there's, there are a couple other cyclists too that, I mean, it was just cool to line up with these guys that were, you know, world-class cyclists, you know, super elite level. Um, and that's what they did to to train in the winter um, was uh, cross-country skiing, especially skeet skiing. It works the very similar muscles, but, you know, the VO2 max mm-hmm. piece of it and yeah. all that. I'm sure that certainly helps. Yeah. So, so that that's actually your involvement in Woodmore aside. Is that actually a form of cross-training that you would recommend for cyclists who are looking to increase their aerobic capacity? It, so training specificity would say that, you know, cycling is the best way to be like, good at cycling. Right. But yeah, to prevent burnout. Um, and I mean, I'm one of those people, I can't sit inside on a trainer. I'd much <laughs> rather be outside, even freezing, freezing, you know, on my, you know, uh, this is why gravel bikes bike exist. And, yeah. yeah exactly. Mid fats and stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, just, there's something to be said about being outside and mm-hmm. I mean, this was all pre COVID, you know, even now more so, but, um, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great way to cross train. Um, I think the one thing cyclists have to kind of be careful of is um remembering that you know your legs are your primary um i mean i mean when you're to be a good ski racer most of your power should be coming from your legs but it's very easy to think that a lot of it needs to come from your arms and you don't want to overdevelop your upper body as a cyclist because then that's going to just be you're dead just, weight right you're just carrying extra cycling. weight yeah. yeah but if you train right and you train smart and you're focusing mostly on you know on leg movement, then, uh, then yeah, it's a great, it's a great cross training opportunity. All right. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, uh, get back to your story some, we didn't, we didn't quite finish out there, but, uh, you were in Spokane yeah. and you, you, that's where you got into the SISM program. Did you end up back at the Air Force Academy? Was it after your, um, doctoral program? Um, I did. Yeah. So, and we skipped a, there was an assignment or two in there we skipped. So after WCAP, um, I came back to the academy, but actually I was working in, um, I was working in Harmon Hall. And then from there, I got picked up to get my PhD 
go to CU Boulder, and then finally came back and uh, ran the Human Performance Lab at the Air Force Academy. And this is a part that I'm particularly interested in as we go through sort of the rest of where you've landed in life, is I think that's a part of athletics, especially cycling, where there's just massive amounts of wealth of knowledge that many people just never even access or don't even think about. Because I think there's a lot of people that probably get into cycling and even get into a little bit of racing where right. it's just, ah, I guess I just got to go ride a bunch. But there's not a lot of science behind it. There's not a lot of application of what takes you from middle to the back of the pack to actually putting you right up there near the podium. Yeah, yeah. yeah and of course, we're still learning, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. still lots of things we don't know that or that we figured out, but, um, you know, there's more, there's, there's still stuff to learn there. So what are, what would you say are some of the big picture things that have changed during your career that, in that, that we're still learning bit? What are some of the stuff that even when you were, you know, looking ahead to a career in competitive athletics and now if somebody else is stepping into the game, what do we have as tools for them that you didn't have? Uh, so so, I mean, this is something that, that's really come out more in the, I mean, it's been several decades, but sure, <coughs> certainly the genetic component, you know, is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, and some countries, you know, have figured this out, you know, before, at least before the U.S. did, you know, of testing, you know, youth. I mean, unfortunately, it looks like, like a lot of it's in some of the communist countries, but, you know, they figure out who, who would be really well, would do really well in certain sports at a young age you know, and then kind of steer mm. them towards that. And what you're talking about here is actual genetic testing for like metabolic yeah, like, efficiency you know, and max things. Test. Yeah, like yeah. I didn't have my first VO2 max test until well after college, mm -hmm. you know, and I kind of learned from racing that, you know, I had a pretty good VO2 max, but I didn't know what that number was. Right. You know, whereas now, I mean, you can, I mean, and, and granted, it's going to change as you, um, you know, through your teens and early 20s, you know, mm -hmm. and, and what, what, how high you can develop it, you know, I mean, it takes a, a while to figure that out, but, you know, there's some people that you could test and you'd be like, you know what, as much as you want to be a competitive cyclist or a cross-country skier, genetically, you just, you're like, never going to, never going to happen. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, you can train as hard as you, as you want, you're never going to get there. Whereas others, you know, you test them, they don't exercise at all and they're already off the chart and you're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> you pick your endurance sport you know, that you want to do, you've got, you have the physiology, you know, to mm -hmm. be great. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, that piece, certainly I didn't know about that as a, as a young high school right. or college racer. Um, For a lot of amateur racers, how important do you think that sort of thing is? Like you've got a test out there. That's the cost of a wheel set. Like, are you going to go buy bike parts or are you going to go get a test done yeah. for VO2 max? Well, and it's, Depends on what sort of wheel set you're talking about. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, there's so many other factors that go mm -hmm. into there. I mean, you look at road cyclists. Um, I mean, crit racing, for example. I mean, you've got to be able to throw down some power, but you also, a lot of it is technique and making the move and just not, mm -hmm. you know, how willing are you to kind of put it out there? <laughs> um, Maybe end up in a hay bale. <laughs> you may end up yeah. in a hay bale, but you may end up, you know, do it really well mm -hmm. um so at an elite level vo2 becomes um more important but i mean at, at an amateur level i mean there's there's so many other factors that go into cycling into skiing that um you know you can compensate for a lower vo2 max with better technique better um 
you know, psychology, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mental psychology game. or just, you know, or, you know, just going for it, you know, I mean, um, I used to hate crit races because, you know, I just go in some, you know, being that close to people, um, bumping bars yeah, and rubbing exactly. elbows at people you know, and yeah. That, uh, that always freaked me out. I didn't want to crash. I'd crashed a couple of times and, you know, but other people, that's just like, you know, they know that that's, that could be an outcome, but, yeah. you know, they can put it out there and fight their way through it. And, oh, well, I mean, something like that, it's, it's not really going to be VO2 as much as, you know, being able to be at the right place and be aggressive and then, you know, maybe be able to sprint there at the end. Um, we keep telling Josh he needs to do crit racing because he's pretty crash resistant somehow, magically, even on a mountain bike. I don't know how this works. That, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> gonna they're going to bounce off of him. Yeah. It's going to be harder to move out of the way for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can do some crit racing here, here in the Springs. Go check out that PPIR circuit when they get that going again. Yeah. Yeah. I've always meant to do that too. It's just such a far drive. I know. When you live <laughs> up in Monument. We're so spoiled here with so many trails. You know, so there's lots of things that it takes to become a good athlete or, mm -hmm. you know, lots of uh, skill sets. And I think one of the things that has been most beneficial in my life is just pure tenacity <laughs> and just, you know, <laughs> yeah. the never give up sort of mm -hmm. um, attitude. Um, it's gotten me through, I mean, lots of, lots of different things. Um, uh, for example, like one, uh, so used to be a, a great cross-country ski race that they would do outside of Steamboat um, called the Corps de Bois. And it was either a 45K or a 90K um, ultra marathon ski race. Um, and they did it, um, you crossed the Continental Divide three times, started um, near Steamboat Lake, Hans Peak Village area. Um, and, you know, you're up at around 10, 11,000 feet for, for a lot of the race. And it's on these, it's not even a Nordic Center, it's these old snowmobile trails that they actually get groomed specifically for this race. Oh, wow. Um, and so, but one just of the, brutal as far as the altitude. The altitude and I mean, the, you know, we talk about like skiing, you, you're trying to wax your skis for those specific conditions. And when mm -hmm. you're starting at 8,000 feet and you're going up to 11,000 feet and there could be storms rolling in. And uh, I mean, it's just impossible to have good skis for that entire distance of the course. Yeah. Um, but I remember one year, um, that I did the, the 90 K and, uh, there was a couple guys that came out, um, so it always would draw some pretty good skiers, I mean, to include Olympians. Um, and uh, so there's one year that there was a couple that came out, uh, really good skiers from back east. And uh, we were racing, you know, and it's very quickly we knew it, it, it was like in the first 5K, I knew it was going to be these two guys and me. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're kind of taking turns like you do bike racing, you know. Sure, kind yeah, baselining it. Yeah. Um, you don't do that as often. Um at least not to cut the wind, but, um, if there's fresh snow on the ground, you don't want to be the one that's busting through the powder first. You want to right. be you yeah, know, yeah. further back. Mm -hmm. Um, just it's smarter. Um, but anyways, as one of the guys was passing me, he clipped my pole with his ski and snapped like the bottom seven inches off my pole. Oh, we're like, no. we're like 6k into the race with no. nine, you know, 6k into a 90k race. Um, and no chance to like go through like, like a mechanical, yeah, like in so bike some, racing where you can st swing by, yeah, change so a some, tire. Uh, most ski races, they do have like, you'll have a coach out there with spare poles, okay. um, you know, to hand poles off to you. Um, but this you're out in the route national forest, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, you're there's just no gone. one out there. Yeah. 
Um, and, and the guy felt terrible too. He's like, Hey, you can have my pole. And he's, he was like a foot taller than me. So it's like, <laughs> no, yeah, like, I'll no, stick bro. with my broken pole. Cause that would, you know, um, th- th- mm-hmm. there's no way uh, that having a longer pole was going to help yeah. me. It would hurt him, but it wasn't going to help me. So I just kind of went to the back and just, I'm like, okay, I got to just try to hang with these guys as long as I could. Mm-hmm. And of course you have to change your technique. You can't put a lot of pressure on that pole. You can't, when it hits the snow, it's going to sink in and there's no basket on it. Yeah. Um, and not only is it going to sink in, it's going to plug the inside of the pole with snow. And so it's going to progressively get heavier and heavier. heavier. Exactly. So, so I was just like, well, you know, the race is probably over, but I'm just going to hang with these guys as long as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I let them lead and I just kind of hung behind them, you know, and as we're crossing the continental divide the first time, the one guy started to pop and he kind of fell off the back. And so then it's just me and the other dude. Um, I forget if it was the one that busted my pole or not, um, but hung with him for another like hour and a half. And by the time we crossed the continental divide the third time, he was hurting. And so, I mean, sure enough, I ended up winning the race with a busted pole after <laughs> you know, by over five minutes. Wow. Um, Whoa. Just by... Just, just by hanging in there by, and... Yeah, just by, you know, pure, you know, tenacity, like I'm not going to quit, you know. Yeah. Um, we're, and, and people that have raced know that it, you never know what the, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can think you just lost the race because you got passed, but you never know what sort of mechanical or other event is going to, you know, yeah. adjust, ch- change the situation and maybe it'll come back to your favor. So just remember, like in the sport of cycling, I mean... Yeah, you never so, know where the flat tire is going to happen. Yeah. I remember I finished the race, you know, and they couldn't believe I had won it, you know, with a busted pole. And then I went out and did my cool down. I came back in and they're announcing, oh, and here's our second place. Oh, never mind. That's Michael Brothers again. He's just finishing his, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there was such a huge gap between me and the second place guy, which I never would have, you know, guessed even possible with oh a busted pole. Oh my gosh. Pole. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, it's just so many events like experiences like that, that you just, um, you know, it, it's, that's what keeps me racing. Uh, well, it would be really cool to touch on a little bit, just, you know, we're, we're here in December and this is the off season for most cyclists. Air quotes around off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Obviously in Colorado Springs and a lot of places it's you can ride your round. yesterday. I, I know. Yeah. I have to go out and ride. <laughs> oh yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. What would you say is the importance of having an off season? So I think, um, well, and what does an off season look like in the sense that some people might just hang the bike up and say off season means I don't ride. I'll see you again in the spring versus those who are just putting in the same miles all year. Yeah. I don't know about the best scientific answer for that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, you know, the more you stick to, again, sports specificity, you know, that's going to help you the best for, you know, training purposes. Um, that said, um, I would go crazy if I had, if I had to do one sport, you know, year round all the time, I would, I would get so burned out. Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing that, you know, with, um, all of the sports, you know, um, all the leagues, you know, that, that kids do now, you know, I mean, it used to be that, you know, kids did multiple sports, you know, now they, you know, there's soccer leagues, um, and hockey leagues that go year round. And, and I think we're already seeing, you know, some, some individuals, some kids that are great players and they get burned out before they even hit, you know, college or could go on professionally. So I, I think personally that, 
um, switching it up is, is really important and having, um, kind of cross training to do, if mm -hmm. you will, you know? Um, so, um, a lot of the guys I race with, they race, they, they're on the bikes all winter long, you know, doing, um, um, you know, on the trainers, doing Zwift or whatever. Um, and invariably early season, they are stronger than me on the bike, but that seems to last only a couple of weeks. And then I'm right back even with them or ahead of them and I'm not burned out. You know, I'm, I'm like invigorated to get back on the bike and do the riding. So, so me personally, I don't, I'll go out maybe once. Um, I mean, well, when it's this warm in December, um, I'd probably be out more than, more than once a week, you know, so I'd still keep the muscles and the physiology familiar with cycling, but I like to, um, add different sports, you know, so go into cross country skiing and, you know, hiking, um, mm -hmm. backcountry, you know, backcountry skiing. I mean, just, um, things that are still going to keep your, um, physiology. I mean, still be working your VO2 Mac. You're, you're, you're just changing the mode. Um, and changing the muscle groups and a lot of that's going to still, um, carry over to cycling in the, in the summer, but it also is just keeping it fresh for, you know, your mind. So do you personally, and with the athletes you work with recommend sort of tapering off and going back to a lot of that, like, cause what some people do, you know, is winter is the time for just the long, slow miles, just keep it in zone one forever in a lot of those training days, is that generally something you do as well? Or That's definitely what I do. I, and I don't work with athletes um, all that much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I did when I coached and I, I had a few athletes that I um, um, mostly ski, although there were a few cyclists that I was kind of coaching individually, but I haven't done that for a couple of years. Um, that may change in the near future. Um, but, um, I, I mean, really, I think it comes down to what the person wants to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if they still are motivated to get on the bike and they still aren't enjoying it and they are going to enjoy that or, or pursue that better than they would some other activity, then it's probably better for them to, yeah. to stick with the bike. Um, but I think having a downtime, being away from the bike, you know, I mean, at least in a, in a competitive sense or having a structured training plan that involves the bike, you know, save that for just, Hey, I feel like going out and doing a ride, yeah. but, but switching over to, you know, swimming or cross country skiing or, you know, some other sort of aerobic, um, out, you know, exercise mm -hmm. that will maintain your, you know, physical fitness, still keep you ready. But, um, but it's not so cycling specific. I think, I think that, um, is beneficial for sure. So another thing that can come, especially if you're looking into Alpine sports, we're here at, you know, 6,000 feet and change, even for us in Colorado, how important is altitude training? And is that something that is worth pursuing over the winter? Like, is that a benefit that you get if you say like, all right, well, I'm not gonna be on the bike, but I'm skinning laps at the top of Hoosier pass. Yeah. Like, is that a benefit that's going to carry forward? So it, it really depends on what, uh, where you're going to be racing. I mm, mean, mm -hmm. if, if you're living in Colorado Springs and you're racing around Colorado Springs, you know, similar altitudes, then, um, you don't necessarily need to do a whole lot with altitude. Okay. In, so in my, I mean, there, there's certainly some things you can do that will help you, but, um, 
I think the altitude training piece becomes more important when you're going to different events. Like I know, you know, I'm going to be racing at sea level. I'm going to be doing a hill climb and I'm going to end at 14,000 feet. Mm-hmm. When you're getting outside of the um, ambient environment that we're living and breathing and training in, um, you know, then it becomes, I think, more of a, a critical component to your training plan. Okay, because this is good. This might sort of help add some clarity to something that I was probably ignorant about. Um, because my conception of it was, all right, your body has to work this hard to do what it can do with the oxygen it has at this altitude. Yeah. So any amount of work that you do above that altitude is going to make you stronger when you come back down. Is that not necessarily the case? Not necessarily the case. Okay, no. why so, not? Um, so the problems with... Uh, so altitude... Um, so as you go up in altitude, your partial pressure of oxygen decreases. You've got, you're basically getting less oxygen right. in every breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is going to stimulate, you know, mitochondria. Um, you're going to have um, effects, you know, at the heart, respiration. You know, it's all of that's going to be elevated compared to what it normally would be mm-hmm. to um, compensate for that reduction in oxygen that, that's in the air. Yeah. Um, but it also is going to change um, at the level of the muscle. Um, how, I mean, so you can't work that muscle as hard. You can't deliver as much oxygen to the muscle. And so it's not going to get as hard of a workout as it would at a lower altitude. Because you just literally can't drive the muscle that hard because there's just not as much right. metabolic function happening because yeah. there's just not as much oxygen yeah, to so, burn. And maybe some, some examples with, again, um, skiing um, mm-hmm. kind of would help because again, we would race, I mean, they have a fist um, regulation of, you know, how high the, you know, the highest course can be Mo- mostly in skiing because our, the, the powerhouses are all from the, you know, Scandinavian countries that are at close to sea level. <laughs> right. And so they are hurt the worst at altitude. Um, mm-hmm. and then, so like in, before the Olympic, um, Olympic trials at Soldier Hollow, where the course actually comes within just feet of the upper limit. Um, oh, I mean, wow. they have to, you know, when they tracked out the course, they couldn't go any higher on the hill because it would have then made the course illegal for fifth regulations. Oh, geez. Um, so they, I mean, um, I think it was Norway. They, they bought out, um, and renovated an entire apartment and made it an altitude house and their athletes were, you know, sleeping at altitude, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of live high, train low, yeah. um, philosophy, um, is still, um, one of the best ones as far as, you know, for altitude training. And this is where you're talking about, you actually have like a, per, a particular barometric pressure, like set inside a sealed environment where when you're not on the bike, it's a lower pressure where it's like you're at yeah. 8,000 feet or whatever, but then you can just head out the door and use all the oxygen there is. Yeah. And, and typically it's not, um, so it'd be much more expensive to make it, um, atmospherically accurate. Um, mm-hmm. so instead they pump oxygen into the room or, or re- remove oxygen from the room, oh, wow. um, to simulate that altitude. Okay. Um, so the, the majority, so trying to figure out the best way to explain it. Yeah. Um, so, so if if you look at ski racing, Mm -hmm. um, and this was lessons I learned kind of the hard way, which also probably steered me towards doing altitude is my my dissertation research. Um, I, uh, Mm. you know, so I race, I, and it's probably because I've spent most of my life at altitude. Um, I race much better at altitude than sea level. Um, so at altitude, you know, everyone is breathing in the same reduced partial pressure of oxygen. So they're mm-hmm. delivering less oxygen to their muscles, you know, and, and if you're from sea level, 
um, you have less blood to deliver less oxygen to the muscles. And so you're going to end up, you're just going to be at a, you know, yeah. a decrement in performance if you're from sea level racing at altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go the other way, though, you, you're an athlete that, you know, lives and trains at altitude, you know, and Colorado Springs is not, it's a moderate altitude. It, it does have, um, based on the research we did at the Air Force Academy, um, there is a significantly higher um, level of total hemoglobin mass and blood volume um, among people that live here in Colorado Springs versus mm-hmm. people at sea level. Yeah. Um, but so those individuals, they go to sea level, you've got now um, more oxygen in the air. You know, the partial pressure of oxygen mm-hmm. um, is, uh, you know, you, you, with every breath, you're, you're picking up more oxygen in your lungs. It's being delivered by your blood. You have more blood than... Um, than a typical sea level person. Right. But the problem is once you get all of that oxygenated blood delivered to the muscles, if your muscles don't, uh, if you've been training at altitude, they it maybe don't know what to do with it. Really? And so, yeah. So for ski racing, it's, it's, it would be, it was always obvious. Like if, so in collegiate racing, um, when I, uh, when I coached and certainly when I raced, um, every year they would alternate between a high altitude, like West coast, uh, venue in a East Coast, mm-hmm. more sea level venue. Yeah, and the cadets at the academy always did great when we raced out west. You know, at an altitude that was similar to what they were used to, and mm-hmm. most of their training was done at Snow Mountain Ranch. Um, you know, which is like nine thousand feet, um, eight nine thousand feet. They would do sprints at Leadville at ten thousand feet. Oh my gosh! You take them to racing at sea level, and I mean, you could just watch them going up a hill, and you could see the difference. The kids, uh, the East Coast. Um, collegiate racers that are used to sea level, I mean, they'd have this super fast pace going up the hill. Um, and so they could just basically like sprint up the hill super fast. In comparison, um, athletes from the academy, athletes from um, altitude, um, while you're delivering, you've got extra blood, delivering tons of um, oxygen to those muscles. Those muscles aren't used to working as hard as they could possibly work at sea level. And so they had one speed and it was still slow. Because that's all that you can normally do. Like, if, again, if you're racing, um, if you're skiing at altitude, you know, you never get to a point where you can push those muscles. Um, I mean, not naturally, so, um, as fast. Yeah. So, and so like, you have to train differently. You have to actually do specific workouts if you know you're going to be racing, uh, for mm-hmm. example, for skiing. If you know you're going to be racing at sea level, you have to do specific workouts that work on that high turnover and... Um, you know, push those, those muscles to go harder than they normally could go, um, with the, the amount of oxygen that's delivered. So this is just, yeah, I know it's super fascinating. So, uh, I'll give an example out of this last year for myself and we'll, we'll put this against your knowledge and see how this, okay. how this tracks. So I was back in Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, that area kind of South bend and went out, did like a seven mile lap on a course. And of course I'm going to be a Strava jerk because I'm feeling like running or riding, cycling? sorry, riding. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to be a jerk on Strava. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm coming from Colorado. I'm going to show these Midwesterners what's up. Well, I go out and I throw down what felt like a lap that I didn't even try. You know, I, I just, all this air, you know, right. The oxygen's coming yeah. in. Wasn't just feeling the motion flow trail got done. And I was, I did really well. Like I was ranked pretty highly on Strava for anybody that had tried it. And I thought, oh man, if I actually put energy behind this, I'm going to crush these guys now that I've seen the trail. Went back out a couple days later, tried to go as hard as I possibly thought I could and barely made a dent in my time. Like the perceived effort was off the charts. Right. 
It felt like I was dying the whole time, but I didn't really go any faster. How soon? So the first I felt time, fairly recovered. I had, you know, I had a window between yeah. the two. How, so the first time you went out, how soon did you do that after leaving altitude? These were two days apart and two weeks after leaving Colorado. Okay. So, hmm, so that would rule out that. So, but it was basically what I was getting at is that me feeling that threshold where, yeah, my lungs are fine, but my legs just literally couldn't work any harder. Even if I tried, like all the oxygen in the world wasn't going to help me. So yeah, that, that could be a component of it. And, and certainly with cycling, it's a little different than skiing because you've got gears, right? So you mm-hmm. can, you can change the perceive, you know, right. you maybe lose that quick turnover, but you, you can adjust that with the gears to kind of avoid that problem. So it's less of an issue, um, I would say for cycling than, than other sports like skiing where, um, where you don't have some sort of a gear that, uh, affects your speed versus you can't play with that mechanical advantage to yeah so i was gonna say if if that first day had been like you know soon after within the first day or two of sure leaving colorado springs Mm -hmm. and then um you know the next one was like a couple days later yeah um that so there's a lot of acute responses that occur when you go to altitude and then when you you know go back to sea Mm -hmm. level um that can you know adjust how someone performs which yeah. is one of the reasons too, like for, for people that are racing, say at altitude, you know, there's this idea of if I'm coming from sea level. I need to either get there and race as soon as possible, or I need to get there well in advance and mm-hmm. start acclimatizing okay. to, um, because there's kind of a window, um, you know, after day one or two before a week or two that you're going to do worse than you would if you raced right, you know, initially mm-hmm. or, or after being at altitude for a while. Ugh. Man, it's I so wild. I would really love to do more of a deep dive on this at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and I can, I can come back in. I mean, we can, <laughs> so this was what my dissertation work was on, was individual, avail, avail, individual variability to uh, altitude acclimatization. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah, we can do a whole show on that. Specifically <laughs> on moderate altitude, you know, but, but the tests were done, you know, with cadets at the Air Force Academy that came in either from sea level or from altitude. Um, so... Quick question though: Can you then cheat and go the other way? Like if somebody thought in ignorance, I'm gonna I'm gonna live at six thousand. I'm gonna go train at nine. That's gonna make me stronger. And you're telling me, well, maybe no, because you're not actually being able to push your muscles that far. Can you flip that and head the other direction? Well, live so, at six, go down to sea level. So that is ideally what you want to do. All so right. Ideally, you want to live at like eight to nine. Mm-hmm. Be sleeping, eating most of your meals, spending you know more than half of your day at a higher altitude mm-hmm. because what happens is that again because of the partial pressure right um you're going to end up basically becoming legally blood boosted it, right it'd be the same as taking epo or you know transfusing blood in except you're doing it legally yeah, yeah it's just because you're living at a higher altitude your body's adapting but the the key and again there's tremendous individual variability sure um it, it's kind of akin to um a thermostat switch, you know, how sensitive it is, you know, Mm -hmm. like how far do you have to turn it before the heater turns on? Some people, you know, it's like you just barely nudge it and the heater turns on or the air conditioning turns on. Others, you have to crank it up like 10 degrees before, you know, the furnace finally kicks in. Um, People are the same way as to how they relate to altitude. So everyone's Mm -hmm. got kind of this um, threshold they have to exceed really to have a response. But, But the idea is that you spend, you need to spend at least and ideally more than 12 hours of each day at altitude. So you get that blood boosted effect, but mm-hmm. then 
you do at least your hard workouts at sea level as close as you can to low altitude. Um, and that way you're training the muscles to be able to utilize all that extra oxygen that you can deliver with the extra blood you have and the extra oxygen that's there. Um, for the, the, Holy cow. the base right. or, you know, like, like level one, level two, you know, anything below lactate threshold, those mm -hmm. can be done at, you know, the high altitude or the moderate altitude. But the key ones are working, you know, you're doing your sprint workouts, your hard sessions at low altitude. So um, the day we have a hyperloop from up here in Colorado to somewhere in Texas, we're going to see interesting things in athletics where people get the chance to actually do like to do that effectively. Well, and this, so this has been done for decades mm -hmm. by the top, you know, um, a lot of the top endurance athletes. This is, this is this, what that's they do. how life is. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, lots of people have the hypoxic tents that mm -hmm. they put over their beds so that they can sleep at a, a higher altitude. And, um, and we'll travel down. I mean, we can go down to Pueblo and drop several thousand feet. Um, they did a lot of studies. Uh, Stray Gunderson and uh, Ben Levine um, did a bunch in Utah, the same thing, where they were um, had the athletes staying around Park City or even higher up on Daniel's Pass, Daniel's, Daniel's Summit, um, where they're around eight to 9,000 feet, but they would go down into the valley and, again, do their, their hard workouts in the morning. Because the other problem is that sleeping at altitude, so you don't recover as well either. Oh, so okay. you're getting the beneficial um, erythropoietic effect, you know, mm -hmm. you're getting more red blood cells made because you're spending, um, you know, the majority of your time at this high altitude. And so your body, you know, there's acute responses. You increase your heart rate, you increase your respiration. Um, you have diuresis, you know, you, you pee a lot, which mm -hmm. basically um, thickens, takes the water out of your blood so that you have more red blood vessels in any given volume being pumped to your muscles. Whoops. Um, and then there's more chronic effects, you know, where ultimately heart rate and respiration, all those acute effects can kind of dissipate a little bit because you have more red blood cells that you've made to compensate for that reduction in oxygen. But when you're exercising at altitude, recovery is, it takes longer to recover. And so you have to be very careful that you don't overtrain. And, and then I, that actually was one of my issues in 2006, I believe, is I, um, so I worked with the Olympic Training Center. I was, mm. I was doing some of the hyperoxic training. So I, I was, uh, my house is at 7,500 feet. I figured that was high enough, but um, I was supplementing oxygen during my in, interval workouts um, with a little oxygen canister in the back oh, and yeah. just a nasal cannula in my mouth. And it was very low tech, but, mm, yeah. um, but definitely worked, but I, did too much. I, I overtrained and was just totally cooked by the time trials came. Oh my gosh. So there's wow. a, there's a, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of cool science, but there's, um, you have to, there's a, there's certainly a recipe that you have to follow. And the problem is that recipe is different for each individual. And so for a lot yeah. of the testing that we've done, um, it's trying to figure out, you know, what works for that person. Mm -hmm. Um, we just, I was lucky enough to test Jesse Dickens and a couple of the other Olympians, um, Nordic skiers. Um, Jesse Dickens was our um, f first and only gold medal, um, Olympic gold medal yeah. um, winner from the Olympics. And uh, and so we were doing some testing just specifically looking at how they, um, how they adjusted to altitude mm -hmm. um, so that they could then go to this altitude training camp um, and know you know, how hard to go, how hard not to go, 
so that they, uh, you know, get the best training effect out of it. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, hopefully that is uh, a little teaser for, for something to come in the future, but wow, yeah. a lot of, a lot of wisdom thrown down. Um, you can chew on that for a while. <laughs> yeah. We could go all day on that kind of stuff, literally, but we may have to, yeah, have you back on sometime if you'd like. And, uh, just really go down the rabbit hole on that one. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, well, I want to respect your time. We have a few more questions we'd like to hit before we really close out. How about best day, worst day? <laughs> we normally say, oh, yeah, yeah. We normally ask the guests, uh, anybody on the show, what is the best day you can remember on a bike and what is the worst? But in your case, we've got a couple sports to play with. Yeah. So why don't we just say on bike or skis? Hmm talking about a lot of decades right? <laughs> it's a lot of days yeah um yeah. uh i'll i'll just i'll say within the last decade because that's yeah my memory as i'm getting older <laughs> um it's harder um so both both i'll i'll list ski races for both of them um they're both ones the during the last three years that i was kind of competing not as a professional athlete, but still fairly competitive, um, living up in Michigan, um, during, uh, my last three years in the Air Force. Um, so, uh, best day was probably, uh, it was the Noquamanon, uh, it's a big ski race, um, that they do in, uh, Marquette, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't remember which year I, I raced it all, um, all three years I was up there and then went back for a fourth year and won it all four times in the skate race. And I should clarify that it's both, they have both techniques, classic and skate. Mm -hmm. And the, the big money is in the classic race. And we already talked about that. I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a better classic skier than I used to be, but I still, I'm a, if I'm going to be competitive, I'm, it's going to be the freestyle, yeah, the, yeah. the skate race. Mm -hmm. So I, I did the skate race and it was uh, one of these races where... Um, it started snowing at like 2 a.m. and it was just coming down all night. And so they oh, went no. out there and they groomed the trail, but it was still snowing. And so the classic race went off first mm -hmm. and, you know, they have classic tracks. And so those are all packed down nice when our race started. Yeah. And then we've got six to eight inches of fresh powder in the skate lane, oh. which oh, is just no. brutal. I mean, just yeah. hard work. And so, um, it was, it was the best day because I, I won the race, not necessarily because my physiology but just because of race tactics and being smart i i hung i mean i stayed with the lead pack but i was in like the back 10 kind of staying behind them and then as it started as people were popping off because you're just expending all this extra energy mm -hmm. busting through the trail um when it got to the point where i was having to work too hard even hanging behind those guys i just hopped in the tracks and just double pulled and you know the tracks were smooth packed down glazed would not normally have been the most efficient technique but for the conditions it was. And so, you know, by halfway into the race, it's like me and two other guys just barely holding on to me. And, and so I won the race by a lot, uh, a wide margin just because, you know, I technically, I, I mean, I just, I skied a really smart race. Um, the, the worst day was another ski race up there, the, uh, Vasa, um, uh, downstate Michigan. And I was going against, um, another really competitive skier, and we were fighting just tooth and nail all the way through, taking turns, you know, pulling, trying to drop the other person and um, still neck and neck all the way up to the last corner in the finish. And about a K before 
In fact, it's probably the only time that I've experienced cramping during ski racing. And um, you came in and you had this 180 degree corner that you had to make um, tight corner to then before you cross the finish line. And so I'm up there right next to him, you know, with my move of I'm going to cut to the inside and I'm going to pass mm -hmm. him and, you know, and out sprint him at the end. And I made those first couple moves in the skating motion of the turn. My legs just started cramping. Oh, and no. I just walked up completely. And like he made the corner and I just like veered off the course. I couldn't turn. I just went straight oh, no. into like a hay bale or something and then had to pick myself back up. And, you know, I, I, like, uh, I finished second, but, you know, just it's like, ah. Uh, you know, one of those races where you, you have it, and you yeah. can see it, you know, you're going to can literally gonna see the race, finish. Yeah. And then physiology gets the best of you and you um, oh. just completely, completely lost it in the last like 300 yards. Yeah. Still oh fun, my gosh. But, yeah. Wow. But crushing all <laughs> crushing, the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also love to ask, you know, you, you have poured so much of your, your life individually into this training process and now it's kind of a family affair. Your, your whole family is in the cycling world. How has that changed your perspective and dynamic? It's, um, I mean, it's been good, but at the same time, it's also hard because um, while I love, I love the fact that uh, like all three of my kids, my, so my, my wife used to be a competitive runner, not, never at the elite level that I was, but, um, and then after knee surgery, she's gotten into cycling and she's um, gone all, all in on it. I mean, she... I used to mountain bike with her and she used to hate me for taking her mountain biking. And, <laughs> and now she writes, you know, she was like two years ago, she was riding a gravel bike on mountain bike trails and, and finally has gone back to mountain biking and is now done mountain biking races. So it's awesome to see her get into it. And then all three kids, um, it's, it's fun to try to, I mean, to work with them and see them kind of experience, um, you know, going through the, hopefully the same thing that I had, um, you know, all the, the Marvel movies are all very popular, you know, um, all my kids love the Marvel mm -hmm. movies. And, and so I've told my kids that you guys have a superpower. You just have to develop it, you know, like genetically, you guys are predisposed to doing well yeah. in endurance events, but you know, you have to put the time in and, and one of my three kids, um, the older one who has gone through puberty and, you know, she, she went from hating mountain biking to being very, very good at it. And, you know, now to the point that she's, um, any school that she's looking at for college has to have a mountain biking team or, you know, a mountain biking club nearby, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and the boys aren't there yet. I, I, they're on the same track that I was on, I'm sure. Um, and, and they'll get there, but at the same time, it's hard for me to, to, um, see them like have this ability and not be, you know, utilizing it, um, developing it. Cause they could, they could be developing it and do better than I did because they've, you know, can rely on what, you know, lessons I've learned and, and, um, you know, but, but you have to want it and, and they'll maybe want it eventually. Maybe they won't, but, um, they're at this point, they're like, yeah, I don't mind biking, but I, I, I don't want to go too hard and I don't want it to hurt, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and you don't develop your, your superpower if you don't make it hurt a little bit. Got to learn to love the pain. Well, like I said, we could go on absolutely all day, but, uh, 
thank you so much for the time already today. Like this has been awesome. And uh, yeah, if, if we can get you back on here again someday, we can get super nerdy about it. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Very cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, yeah, there's so much we didn't get into about uh, in, in your story, like COS racing, like all kinds of stuff, but hopefully we'll be able to cover that in the future. Yeah, yeah I'd be happy to come back. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah right. thank you guys. Thanks a ton. All right. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.